Welcome to the latest issue of RehabCast, the podcast brought to you by the Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. I'm your host, Dr. Ford Vox. In this episode, we'll be highlighting articles in the July and August 2019 issues of the journal. First up, we'll be talking with Dr. Marsha Bachbrader of The Ohio State University, who has published on the remarkably functional gains achieved by a tetraplegic man outfitted with a brain-computer interface-controlled FES system. Then, from the August issue, we'll be talking with Dr. Stephanie Van, who, along with her team from Johns Hopkins PM&R, dramatically reduced opioid prescription rates and boosted naloxone prescriptions on discharge from acute rehabilitation. So joining us now on the rehab cast is Dr. Marsha Bachbrader. Dr. Bachbrader is Assistant Professor and Residency Research Director uh, and Residency Research Course Director uh, in PM&R at The Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. She's also Director of uh, Neuromodulation uh, and Human Machine Interface Programs. Dr. Bachbrader, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Dr. Box. Um, I believe that we're here to talk about my new paper that came out looking at how we can improve the hand function of a patient with C5-level spinal cord injury. Yeah, and I suppose there's a lot of ways that someone could go about that. You perhaps chose the hardest way, <laughs> but uh, certainly the most technically uh, innovative way. This is uh, brain-computer interface, and uh, you and your group have, have published on this uh, device before, and I believe this, this same individual, and now we're getting some more clinically uh, relevant uh, information about his improvement with the device. I guess start us out at, at ground one and tell us about the, the technology and its development. I know you guys had a, a Nature um, article uh, in uh, 2016, it looks like, that um, first, um, I, I believe was the first to, to announce what you were doing with this uh, individual patient, but correct me if I'm wrong on that. And just, so just tell me um, uh, about it. And I understand that the, there's a, a company uh, involved as, well, an organization uh, involved as well called Battelle. Correct. So the original paper in 2016 was a demonstration of proof of concept. And the idea was, could we use an intracortical electrode in someone's motor cortex to read and then decode the movement-related thoughts that would allow him to move his own paralyzed hand. Mm -hmm. And this process, at least for us, started in 2013 when people in our leadership at Ohio State got together with people in the leadership at Battelle, which is a foundation that is dedicated to basically developing technology to improve people's lives. Mm -hmm. So they are behind such things as the Xerox machine oh, really? mm -hmm. um, and, and some other sorts of things that you don't really think about, sort of the lining in pop cans or in, in some beer cans. So from an innovation standpoint... Well, that's a real contribution to humanity. I know, exactly. <laughs> Sorry, I know. Right? So they, they have a pretty wide footprint in terms of the kinds of technology they do, even um, defense sort of initiatives, signal processing initiatives for you know satellites and, and drones. I believe they also have a drone project that sends a signal mm -hmm. that will ground a drone that's, that's flying over the area so that you know you can protect your your area from the drones that might be stalking you or whatever. But the whole point is they have people that come from a very, very large variety of backgrounds. 
So if hmm. if you say, all right, you know, I want to do this thing, but I need a statistician. Well, they've got a statistician. And you say, all right, well, you know, I got my stats covered, but now I need someone who knows a lot about nanotechnology. They've got that too. So, And they're based right there in, in Ohio. It, it is like. literally across the street from where the rehab hospital is. And it was kind of a huh. no-brainer for the people, you know, in charge there and here to say, let's pool our resources and our technology and see if we can't change the life of people with spinal cord injury. So that was really the grand plan to see if we could, using all of their experts in everything from computer science to electrical engineering and our expertise in rehabilitation medicine and neurosurgery to bring together the mm -hmm. team that was necessary to bridge a damaged spinal cord and reanimate a person's hand under his own thought control. So fairly early on after we were extremely lucky to recruit our participant who was about two years out from his spinal cord injury. He didn't have any major health problems besides his spinal cord injury, um, young and very, he was an athlete, so he was used to this idea of mm. practicing until you get something right, and very mm -hmm. interested in technology, and very interested also in using his injury as, as a springboard to do something that would make a difference both for himself and for others. And in, in his own mm. words, he never really thought that he would get any benefit from doing this research. In his mind, it was all about how can we advance neurotechnology to eventually improve people's lives? Yeah, because you couldn't you can promise them it was going to work at all. You really right. didn't, didn't know for sure. Well, yeah. Although, had it, had it been tried in monkeys first, I presume? Right. So, we are standing on the shoulders of giants, as they say. So, absolutely, this sort of thing had been tried in a number of, of different um, animal species. And also, what had been done previously in humans it's through the BrainGate project, through mm -hmm. UPMC, both of those groups had used this same sort of implant in a human's motor cortex to link their brain up with some decoding software and then control the movements of a robotic arm. Mm -hmm. Even with really high fidelity control of, of grasp to give you the manual dexterity to be able to, for example, um, do parts of a standardized motor control test called the, the ARAT. And the idea be, behind using standardized tests is they, they have a range of objects of sizes and weights, different things that, different grasps that you would need to change your, your hand shape into, different forces you would need to apply in order to keep those objects in your hands. And then a lot of them have timing and other sorts of metrics to give you a better idea of sort of where are the areas that this technology does really well and where are the areas where the technology fails. Mm -hmm. So the other piece of neurotechnology development that we were building on is the, the area of um, functional electrical stimulation, which for people with spinal cord injury is something that had been around since well, at least the 50s or the 60s. And mm -hmm. there was even a commercial device out of Cleveland that was called the freehand system that was an implanted version of these electrodes. And it enabled people with a C5 level of injury to control their hand grasp through myoelectric control or other sorts of, of switches or devices. 
So we, we built on really all of those previous accomplishments and tried to connect everything together into one system. Subsequently, the, the Cleveland team who was behind the freehand system has done something similar to what we did, but using mm. implanted electrodes in their participants' forearm. So the thing that distinguishes us today from what the Cleveland team has been doing up to this point is that all of the electrodes on our participants' arm are wearable. And the thought is, wouldn't it be great if someone could just get up, push their arm into some spandex-like sleeve, and then as soon as the system's connected, be able to sort of get up and go about their day, maybe even grasp the side rail of their bed um, to, to pull themselves up or do some bed mobility. So then that would require some actual modification of textiles and that type of thing, I would imagine, right. to get some type of electrode that elastically would, right. would kind of wrap around the extremity. And that is where people like Patel come in, because you, you say, well, nobody's really done exactly this. What do we need to do it? And no kidding, their motto is, quote, it can be done. So they bring together the people from tactiles, from the electrode side of things. And they were in the background continually sort of changing and upgrading and trying things out in terms of the electrical um, stimulation interface in order to give us better control over the forearm muscles that we were stimulating to try to get the desired hand, sh hand shapes and grips. We started out with these plasticky looking strips that we stuck to our participant's arm with some sticky gel electrodes that we, we had to put on these strips before every session and take off the strips and off his arm at the end of every se session. And those were incredibly useful from the point of view of they, they kept the electrodes right against his skin so he could do things like pronate and supinate his forearm without really changing where that electrode was against his skin. And we progressed on to something that was wearable in the sense that we were talking about. So elasticy, it had the, the electrodes um, implanted in, a, in an array around his forearm that mimicked the array that we were using with the strips. So over time, that aspect of things developed and it's continuing to develop to include things like, all right now, what, what are the best parameters for stimulation to give motor control that doesn't fatigue the muscles in the arm um, or is the least uncomfortable to the person who is receiving the stimulation? It's, it's not unlike what therapists use in, in therapy these days with their, their therapeutic activities to grasp and release things with the commercially available um, orthotics or FES systems. This one though just has a much more finely distributed array of electrodes to allow you mm -hmm. to steer the current to exactly the muscles that you want to target and avoid the muscles you don't want to target. And this this experiment, this particular subject, it's just it's certainly continues to uh, go on. Uh, there's uh, what you're saying is with this individual subject, uh, new electrodes are being developed and tried to see if it can improve his control of his arm. Right. And we, we did some trial and error to figure out where do you need those electrodes, how dense does the array need to be in order to be able to really get good movements, good stimulation of precisely the muscles you wanted to stimulate. Um, his experiment actually is over. It was for five years, and now it's it's completed. 
And so the electrodes have come out of his brain as well? No, the electrodes are still in his brain. And he's trying to decide what he will do next. He's thinking he uh, okay. may want to continue. Um, he's considering possibly another surgery to have more impl electrodes implanted. So he's he hasn't decided quite yet where he's going to go with this. But I don't think he's done with brain-computer interface technology yet. Explain to me and the listener uh, why um, this even surgically works uh, from, I would just think there would be an extraordinarily high risk of stroking that brain where you're inserting uh, these electrodes. Why, why doesn't that happen? That's a good question. And I don't know why um, it doesn't happen, but I can tell you that in the primates, the the research suggested that the life of these electrodes um, is maybe a year, maybe two years. And so mm -hmm. we were very surprised when two years came and went and we were still getting good signal. Three years came and went and we were getting good signal. Even at five years, we were getting good signal. Um, and really, the only reason the study closed was that was the end of our, our funding period. So I see. The, the hypothesis is that in the primates, they, they're doing things that human subjects aren't doing or we're asking them not to do. So there's less trauma in and around the pedestal site that's on the sure. person's skull. We do know that the initial insertion of this very small electrode array, it's you know, smaller than a dime. It's I'm trying to think it's smaller than a pea. I'm trying to think of something that, that would be visually uh, appropriate as a comparison, but it there is some edema that's caused after the insertion. People do have headaches for you know a couple weeks afterwards, but that tends to go down rather quickly in about two weeks to a month after the the placement of the array. Um, the brain seems to the inflammation around the site, the brain itself just seems to calm down, and then we get a good stable signal that really it does decay over time. So we think there's some gliosis, there's some long-term effects of inflammation, which was one of the reasons why people had posited these things really as not being a, long, a good long-term solution for brain-computer interfaces. The, the value of doing something implanted like this is that the signal quality and um, the spatial and temporal resolution of the signal is such that you really can pick up small enough populations of neurons that you can detect when the person's thinking about moving individual fingers or um, moving in different directions, say extension versus flexion of those individual fingers. Whereas if you were mm -hmm. trying to do scalp EEG, you can tell when a person's trying to move his right arm, let's say, and you can distinguish that from when he's trying to move his legs or his left arm, but it is much more difficult to get the really fine-tuned resolution that you can get either from intracortical or what they call ECOG arrays that are usually subdural or above the dura on someone's brain. Is there anyone speaking of those ECOG arrays? I mean, obviously that seems less invasive since you're not actually piercing the, the right. brain tissue. Is there, uh, or is anyone doing research with leaving those in? The only type of research that I've noticed was uh, is the kind where that those ECOG arrays are being placed perioperatively at epilepsy surgery, but I don't know if a device has been developed that can be left in. That's correct. That's one of the limitations of that type of electrode system. We know that using that type of electrode, you can detect the 
intent to move hand, wrist, and forearm. Um, I don't know that it's been explored in as great a depth as the Utah arrays because literally those ECOG arrays are meant for use for 60 days or less. And so because when they're used clinically, as you say, it's, it's for monitoring surgery and trying to identify where the focus of an epileptic um, seizure focus is, they don't tend to stay in long enough to really get to do all the things that you can do with a person that we had, for example, two to three times a week, three hours a day for five years. So, of course, the data is going to be more limited in that setting. There are people who propose the ECOG as a good alternative to this because it does have better, better resolution of the neural signal than the EEG, and it wouldn't be something that you would need to spend the, the minutes to hours to set up and take down every day that, that you would if you did an EEG system. Um, but so far, nobody has done long-term ECOG recording and, and shown that it's something that can be used to reanimate someone's arms or legs. Now, uh, there's been some news in, in this space from uh, Elon Musk, of all, of all people, who's uh, invested in this company called uh, Neuralink. Right. Uh, I don't know if you followed that at all or what your thoughts are about what, um, <clears throat> obviously, they didn't share a whole lot of information about exactly what their array consists of, but uh, could you tell what was different about that versus the, the Utah array and what y'all have been doing? So there are a lot of innovative projects out there trying to figure out what is a more long-term sustainable array for implantation that results in less human body response to the placement mm. of the array. So there, there are a number of different types of electrode systems that can go in. So the Musk system is a different type of electrode system. So the Utah array is the one we used is a 96 channel uh, platinum and silicone array that has these sharp little points that you use a pneumatic injector to pierce the cortical surface and, and then it will sit there on the cortical surface until you come back and, and you pull it out. I don't know all the details of the Musk system, but it is meant to be something that is more invasive in the sense that it, it goes into potentially more areas of the brain um, in a more widespread manner. And my first impression was, if it works, it would give you a really rich array of signals. But the process of implanting something that is like little threads that, that would be pushed in through your brain tissue, I just wonder how traumatic that experience would be for the brain. Um, and I guess, assuming they carry the project forward, that's that's something we'll find out. So that that's my big question about... How is that going to be better than this? Definitely, you want to manage the brain's response to the implant. But I think you also need to take into account the implantation process itself and what sorts of changes that might cause the brain. One of the things that we see around the array in both people and animals who've, who've had this type of implant is a scar forms. So right now, that scar is very localized around the Utah array. So if you had something that formed a scar around all of these little threads, I would wonder both how that signal quality would be sustained and also what that would do to have that kind of scar in your brain long term. Well, I guess if anybody's willing to take that risk, it's uh, it's him. I mean, he's uh, 
ready and willing to yep. put out uh, hundreds of thousands of uh, AI-controlled vehicles on the on the streets and see what happens. <laughs> we'll be finding out before too long. What could but, go wrong? <laughs> uh, all right. Well, uh, now getting to your to your to this latest study, uh, obviously, um, hence also from the title, which I'll uh, read for our audience is clinically significant gains in skillful grasp coordination by an individual tetraplegia using an implanted brain-computer interface with forearm transcutaneous muscle stimulation. So um, in this paper, which is uh, in great detail, you're going through a number of different uh, functional tests and uh, scales with, with the patient demonstrating the, what he can do with the device uh, on and off. Um, and uh, it, it is impressive, the, the new capacities that he gains um, with it is almost as if he had uh, gained a couple of spinal cord levels. So um, uh, describe to us uh, kind of what, what your thoughts are of the highlights from this work. So I think one of the very important things that we wanted to convey with this particular paper is that very early on, we progressed beyond the point of we can give this man control of his hand back to we can give him useful control of his hand. And coming from the rehab world, really that means doing functional tasks. And in order to understand neurotechnology to the extent that at any point in, in our lives, it'll be something that people can use at home. It's important to me to be able to characterize what are its strengths and what are its weaknesses, because any system like this is, is going to come with risks. And so it's important to be able to have the conversation with stakeholders, whether it's the patients, their family, the, the medical professionals, the insurance industry, government payers, what do we expect this person to be able to do with this device? Why should we spend $100,000 to do this implant? Um, and what do we expect this person to gain sort of on the other end? So in order, the best way to do that, I think, is to gather data from a number of people using the system, doing standard tasks in the same way so that we can look to see, can we get a reproducible benefit among a bunch of different people? And that's been hard to do to this date uh, because this is an expensive sort of research study to do. So these studies tend to have not very many people in them. And as a result, it's really hard to compare. For example, all right, we're using the robotic arm versus the FES sleeve. What versus the implanted FES system? You know, what can you do with one that you might not be able to do with the other? And so our approach to this was to use the standardized testing as a framework for being able to articulate what the, the strengths and the weaknesses of this particular system happens to be with the goal of thinking, all right, if this and other technologies get developed in the future, who might this be a system that would work the best for? What's our target use case in terms of a person and a situation? So, so with that in mind, we we really did try to comb the literature to see, first of all, what had been done with other standardized testing evaluations in people using neuroprosthetics, and also what is done as people recover from a spinal cord injury to understand what their level of function is. And this is a new enough field that there really is no standardized battery of tests to provide to people. And so we picked a range of things that gave us some information about his ability to use his hand and what that meant for his independence for activities of day, daily living. And then also what we could say. So if, if we were to justify to insurance 
um, oftentimes they want to know if they are going to buy a thing in particular, how that is going to impact their care needs and also the, the expenses that you, you would expect for that individual. So the spinal cord level is something that I think is really helpful to articulate that because most people at the C5 level, you don't expect them to be able to live independently. You expect them to need about 10 hours of care per day. But if we can get someone to maybe the C7 or the T1 level, that's something that really people can more reliably live alone safely and maybe they only need two or three hours of care a day. Now, with this research device, certainly my, my understanding of it and the setup required and everything, it didn't reach the level where this individual was able to use it in, in the home essentially on his own, I guess not without somebody coming out there and setting it up, is that That's right? correct. So everything that we did in this paper was in the research lab. Um, Mm-hmm. But the reasons we did what we did in the research lab, they were all with an eye to making a system that could be translated into something that people could use in their homes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for example, we used the the grasp measure, which can tell you the the ability of a person to pick up small objects, to to pick up um, jars, for example, and turn their lids, and we use the action research arm test, which is more typically used in stroke. Um, and that gives you an idea of their ability to do more of a gross grasp versus a grip versus a very fine pinch grip. And the other nice thing about that particular test is there are some psychrometrics that can tell you, all right, what's clinically significant in terms of a change in the score? And it turns out for that particular test, it's about six points. And Anything, you know, that means if you score 12, let's say, and you do some intervention and that person gains six points and they end up at an 18, you have fundamentally changed their life in what they can do for themselves. So we demonstrated without the device that his score was roughly a 16, but then when he put the device on and did all of those same standardized tasks, his score was closer to 30. And... If we were to get this sort of outcome in a a stroke motor recovery study, this would be amazing. Um, So this suggests to me, basically, um, this is a system that's useful for a lot of the grips that people would need to use in their daily life. And then looking at some of the other testing, you have the grasp and release test that has a whole bunch of objects that were used to evaluate, for example, tendon transfer surgeries in uh, tetraplegia, as well as the freehand neuroprosthetic. And the idea behind that test is, look, we want to know, can you pick up something as small as a peg? Can you do a palmer grasp of something like a fork and grip it hard enough to press down as if you were pressing down and stabbing some steak or some potatoes so that you can eat? And they, they really used common objects of different sizes and weights to to give us an idea of, can you pick up a toothbrush? Can you pick up a can of pop? Those sorts of things. It sounds sounds in many ways that the work that y'all did with the FES um, and how granular that got functionally is is almost just as important as the array itself and that theoretically it can be controlled by other muscles. I mean, um, does the thought occur to you that, or or let me see if you think that that's the case. So, 
wouldn't it be possible, like thinking back to really old school, like arm prosthetics yep. and so forth, and how you uh, kind of move your upper torso in order to, uh, you know, make your claw hand grip and that type of thing. You know, you could you could put uh, electrodes on on facial muscles, for example, or you know, utilize the tongue or other things, uh, other parts of the body that you can move in order to translate that to to get function out of your your arm through this FES. Absolutely, and that's one of the things about this particular system that I like a lot, that you can think of it as being modular. And definitely one of the things in my clinical experience that I've seen with patients coming through is everybody has a different set of needs. And so it's really important, especially with assistive de devices, to be able to tailor your approach to what's going to work best for that person. So, yes, a person could use this device under myoelectric control. And in fact, Battelle is developing this leave to be sort of like an EMG muscle response detector that can then send a reinforcing stimulation. So you could literally sense a weak attempt to grasp and then have that be something that the system sent, right, sends an augmenting response. So I think that's that makes sense in in terms of a person who has... Um, partial innervation, partial control of their mm -hmm. arm, but someone who is motor complete is going to need something else um, to be the controller. And you could use, for mm -hmm. example, the opposite shoulder or a facial muscle. Um, but then you get into the non-intuitive situation of thinking about one thing while you're trying to do something else. And in some situations that works and it works just fine. Um, but if you are trying to do complicated things and multitask, what it does is it establishes a higher bar to begin with to do that first initial task. So you're not going to be able to do quite as much simultaneously. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I would say the, the biggest difference between this system and something that is myoelectric control is that literally the user is just thinking about the action he wants to complete. So he's thinking about gripping an object and that neural activity associated with gripping is is what's translated into the actual motor activity of, of gripping through the FES system. And then the thing that differentiates it from an EEG type setting is the time scale of the response. So we can pick up the motor intent to do an action um, within 500 milliseconds of the user actually thinking about it. From an EEG standpoint, that time course is really more onto the range of two to three seconds. And mm -hmm. that can be enough time really to, to interrupt a signal to drop an object. Or if you think about holding something hot or sharp, that mm -hmm. that's potentially dangerous. So being, being able to do something in a more naturalistic time scale of of when you would need to react um, and the way a normal spinal cord would do is, is really much safer for the user and for the people around them. And that's one of the reasons I like this intracortical approach because it, it gives the user a much more natural use of their own limbs back. Not to say that it couldn't be done in another way, but for some people, this may be the best way to go about doing it. 
So uh, Battelle is a uh, R&D research organization, work, works with you know government, commercial, and everybody. Obviously, for, you're saying this uh, sleeve that has been developed is something that they are looking to refine for the commercial market, I guess, through some type of partner? They are working to refine it for the commercial market. At this point, I don't know that they have a partner. I think they're still working out some of the kinks. I know that they have a couple different medical centers that they're in talks with using this for stroke recovery. Um, they're still developing just the algorithms behind sensing the muscle activity that they would then augment through the sleeve. And Patel is mm -hmm. not the only group who is working on basically a wearable electrode sleeve. I know of at least three others in the United States, Canada, and Germany that are doing something similar. So my hope is that, you know, in the next five to 10 years, we'll, we'll see a number of different options of these things that, that people can wear and use at home. What is next? You mentioned this study has, has wrapped up uh, with this particular uh, individual, at least for now. Um, or is there something else early stages in the works or are all just kind of on, on pause for this or what's next? So we have a couple different paths that we are currently going down. As I said, our participant is considering whether he wants to get an implant on the other side of his brain. So he would have bilateral implants and for him that might give him the ability to control both arms. Um, we've also worked with him to, to use the brain responses that we've previously interpreted as um, thoughts of forearm movement into control for cars and for a semi-autonomous vehicle. So that is something that he's still interested in doing. And we've, we've got some of the preliminary data of him actively driving a driving simulator with his brain. So the idea would be, and, and again, the question is, all right, why, why would you go about getting a brain implant? If it's, if it's just to give you the ability to do hand grasp, that is something that maybe you could achieve in other ways. But if your brain implant also allowed you to connect to your smart home and raise and lower the curtains and drive a car and potentially drive your wheelchair, give you mobility, um, maybe command your Hoyer lift to do an automated transfer, then that's the point at which something that's much more flexible because it's brain-based has more value than just an EMG-controlled orthotic. And so those are some of the things that we are exploring with with our partners. And we'll see. Um, Ian's had a dream of being the first person to drive a car on the Utah Salt Flats with his brain. And, hmm. you know, we, we're at the point where maybe we could do that because we know he's driven a driving simulator that's that's used to test some of these autonomous vehicles. He's actually successfully parallel parked. Oh wow, that's more than some other the car and the driving with, simulator. With arms, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so that that's going to be presented at an IEEE conference this summer mm -hmm. in, in Italy. So that's I think in progress. And ultimately, though, I think what's important both to Ian, the device manufacturer, and by that I mean BlackRock. They're they're the people who make the implants. And to me personally are, how can we use this research as a springboard to change people's lives? I think it's a novel and interesting study on its own, but I also think that it is something that could have impact on a wider scale. 
So BlackRock estimate, estimates that they can make something like this implant available to people for about $100,000. And if you consider the number of people with his level of injury in the United States and the fact that they each probably use at least $40,000 worth of publicly supported home care every day, you could save roughly $4 billion annually if every one of those people had some sort of technology to give them back their ability to use their hands. Mm. So on something with that scope and scale, I think that it's important to ask, is it something that we can safely take out of the research lab? And the investigators at Pitt have developed with BlackRock a portable device that at least allows direct communication between the brain and uh, a portable computer, a medical grade computer. So what we are hoping to do next is submit some grant applications that will allow us to use that portable system, refine it so that we can not just connect it with a relatively less powerful medical grade computer, Mm -hmm. um, but something that has outputs so that if you wanted to control a robotic arm or an FES sleeve or your car or your wheelchair, that it was something that you could do not just in the research lab, but in the park or at your home. So that's the dream to see if we can push the technology forward to the point where it becomes a viable alternative for people to think about as an assistive device. And again, not everyone is going to want to do something like this, but the more independent that we can make people, I think the better off they will be. Excellent. Well, I think we can we can leave it at that. Uh, good thought. Well, uh, Dr. Barbrader, it's good to speak with you today about this, uh, this important work and definitely look forward to seeing what comes next. And uh, thank you. Yes, thank you very much. So joining us now on the rehab cast is Dr. Stephanie Van. Dr. Van was chief resident uh, in PM&R at Johns Hopkins, uh, and she is now doing a pain fellowship at the University of Southern California. And Dr. Van and her colleagues have published in the August issue of the archives of PM&R, Implementing an Opioid Risk Reduction Program in the Acute Comprehensive Inpatient Rehabilitation Setting. Dr. Van, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. This uh, study is uh, important on many levels, obviously very timely, uh, certainly with the uh, interest in opioid harm throughout the country generally, and uh, us doctors starting to recognize the degree to which we may have uh, unfortunately contributed to that. Mm -hmm. And every field of medicine needs to uh, address the use of opioids and in rehabilitation environments, you know, they're certainly can be helpful tools, but uh, it's easy to get into a, a habit of, uh, of discharging folks on them without perhaps uh, adequate education and so forth. So this program um, uh, uh, certainly was a, a, a group effort. Now, you were a resident uh, at the time. I see it started in, in 2015. Can you tell me about the genesis of the study? And uh, yeah, did you start right at the beginning? You're absolutely right that it was timely. Um, and it started in 2015 before I was actually a resident. Um, one of the chief residents when I started actually uh, was on call and a patient bounced back to the ED that we had recently discharged from our inpatient rehab unit. And it turned out her husband was accidentally giving her twice the amount of opioids that we were prescribing because it was a different type of tab. And it was very clear that they just didn't understand their mm-hmm. opioid 
regimen and the risks involved. And unfortunately, you know, we don't like to see patients have adverse events, especially because of a lapse in communication or education. So that kind of prompted a root cause analysis with our department. Um, and it spurred this multidisciplinary, like we need to do something about this. So um, I think a, a research group got together and kind of focused on what is the intervention or first what is the problem which is maybe inadequate opioid education and um, just discerning whether or not it's even an appropriate therapy for someone in rehab um, and also how would we even begin to intervene in a way that we can study it and have a meaningful result that can be applied clinically elsewhere. One interesting feature of the study seems to be that it's part of this kind of quality improvement process, and it seems to be evolving over the course of the years that you guys are implementing it, trying to uh, refine what you're what you're doing. Do I understand that correctly? It's not like uh, everything is set in stone at the beginning. Absolutely, it's it's not really a controlled trial since it's a clinical, like real time setting. Um, but we we decided to follow the plan do study act quality improvement method, which is basically you make a research plan with a hypothesis or a proposition, um, and then you kind of analyze and see where your outcomes are going or what measures are changing. Then you implement an intervention acting, mm -hmm. and then you see the results of it. And so it's a very non-traditional kind of flexible research protocol that allowed us to not only make a change and kind of see what the result is, but refine multiple aspects of our clinical workflow and our processes to improve patient care outcomes and reduce opioid prescription. But, you know, it it sounds simple kind of when you say it like that, but it involves everybody on the rehab team, physicians, nurses, therapists, family members, caregivers, everyone kind of has to be on the same page. And that honestly was the toughest part about this project. I mean, we, we got great data that was uh, a pleasant surprise, um, but we knew it was the result of a lot of hard work from multiple parties, uh, just investing in taking the time to educate patients and educate staff. Um, right. So that and, was huge. And this is where the lessons learned are really kind of applicable to everybody, I would think, since this is very much a general rehab uh, unit, uh, hospital-based mm -hmm. that sees a wide variety of of diagnoses, um, everything ranging from uh, classic uh, ortho and cardiovascular stuff to brain injury, stroke, and cancer, and so forth. And mm -hmm. a large number of patients, it looks like 788 uh, over the period of time, uh, were evaluated for potentially including this. So the, the, the heart of the matter is this idea of take-home naloxone and, uh, and certainly training people to do that, but also added on all these other elements about opioid education just for, for the patients, uh, but also for the, for the providers uh, as well. So um, going, going to the naloxone in, in the first place, um, what, uh, uh, what types of uh, barriers do you guys find uh, to uh, educating people about that and uh, using naloxone and so forth and, and mm -hmm. uh, getting people comfortable with the idea of going ahead and accepting and taking that prescription with them? We definitely started with the take-home naloxone concept because it had been proven pretty effective in other settings like the community and emergency departments. So we figured, okay, we can implement this. It's like a tangible proven approach mm -hmm. to the opioid epidemic. Um, and it started with just, you know, what is Narcan? How do you administer it? But we ran into all these snafus in the beginning where uh, first we could only get the injectable form. It wasn't always covered by insurance. Patients were kind of averse to the idea of stabbing themselves or ha having a family member uh, inject something. So we actually 
were over to over to we were able to overcome that barrier by working with pharmacy and getting uh, the intranasal spray approved. And now that is very prevalent. It's so user friendly. Um, mm-hmm. But then we realized that on top of just educating about naloxone and rescuing opioids, patients were interested in learning about what do I do to prevent this? Or, you know, most people, they not only do they not want to overdose, they don't want to get addicted. They don't want any of the adverse event, uh, effects. They just want mm-hmm. the pain relief. So having discussions with uh, patients, families, and staff about what else is there for pain really helps bring people on board with, okay, this is one piece of the puzzle. There are so many other options that I need to tap into before I feel like my pain is not being addressed. Yeah, and understanding the, the limitations of the opioid, of course, and uh, of course, it's so great here that it's about kind of uh, reforming the behavior of the entire rehabilitation unit so that everyone is on the same page, including uh, when you know patients are asking for pain medications that that uh, how the nurses interact with the patient and how people uh, perhaps do other types of psychological interventions and behavioral interventions and so forth. There's quite a lot that, that can be done outside of the physician prescribing behavior because the, mm-hmm. the families and nurses and everybody can kind of egg on uh, upping things towards the, the Percocets and Norcos and everything. Absolutely. And every little thing counts. Like if a nurse notices that a patient's like increasingly depressed and unmotivated, that's not a situation where, oh, they need more pain meds to participate in therapy. Like they need a neuropsychology consultation and little details like that, that really helps the patient optimize their pain regimen. So just diving in a little deeper and kind of using every perspective on the rehab team helps you get a more comprehensive approach to then just the opioids. Because um, you know, we, we learned a lot about opioids, not only, you know, their fatality rates and respiratory depression risk, but also like constipation. No one ever gets habituated to constipation. That's always going to be there. Hypogonadism, uh, hyposexuality and, and increased pain sensitization with long-term use. So we really focused on letting our staff learn about indications for opioids. They're great for acute pain. They're great for surgeries, accidents. They kill any pain. But then long term, uh, they're going to start doing people a disservice by sensitizing them, uh, helping having them develop physical dependence, all these things that people don't actually want to happen. They just don't know about them. Um, and you guys not only obviously dramatically increased the prescription rate of the naloxone uh, through this process, you you cut down significantly on the amount of uh, opioids being discharged with the patients generally through this. Yes, and that was another kind of nice perk of our flexible study protocol is that once we started to see that result, we realized it's not the naloxone prescribing that's really, well, I guess we kind of inferred this, but it's not the naloxone prescribing that's uh, prompting us to prescribe less opioids. It's alerting us to the fact that, oh, we either need to teach someone about naloxone or teach them about the whole concept of pain management. Mm-hmm. And in in just those discussions alone, I think really contributed to people being like, oh, I can, I can start to wean these off or I know when to use opioids and I know when to use the rest of my regimen. Um, and patients feel like they have more control over their symptoms and their medical treatments and their uh, symptom control, yes. I wonder if psychologically, too, the idea, if you're really making it a point to you're going to try to universally send everybody home with naloxone that's remotely reasonable uh, to send them with, if having more of those conversations with people for a fair number of them is kind of scaring them straight to a certain extent, it's like, oh, my doctor thinks this drug is serious enough. I better have the reversal drug um, and really makes them a little bit more motivated in that direction to get off of it. Absolutely. We definitely got a lot of that just kind of surprise, like, oh, I didn't realize it could be 
it could get that bad. And then we also had the other side of patients who were like, oh, you know what? I'm, I'm not an addictive type person. Like these don't affect me. I don't get side effects. Like I'll be fine. So we definitely had people still decline naloxone despite education. And I don't think that's, I mean, obviously that's going to be subject to the provider educating the patient, the patient's personality and their history. Um, but it's still, you know, still having the take-home naloxone program in place at least allows that conversation to happen, even if the patient is not agreeable to naloxone. I mean, it is an extra prescription and it's an extra cost. Um, and as, as long as they verbalize their understanding and, and they have knowledge of the risks involved, then of course, it's absolutely their decision. Um, I'm, I'm curious on one technical matter of uh, if as a provider, uh, you're recommending something for just if you just I'm just curious how you're doing really handle this on your unit. You want to you want to prescribe this for a given patient. They do not want it on discharge. Uh, I might consider still prescribing it. They might not pick it up from the pharmacy. Mm -hmm. um, and does that does that count uh, as well or, or not count? Or what's y'all's preference in that regard? Um, well, I think we were kind of using the agreeability to take home naloxone as an indicator that one they received the education and two they. Uh, receive benefit from the education and that they uh, wanted to be proactive and take this new or at least fill the new prescription. If they mm -hmm. declined, we wanted to make sure that, I mean, I don't think we actually prescribed it to them uh, mm. when when they declined it, uh, mm. but we did definitely note in our notes that the, that the Narcan education happened, the opioid discussions happened, um, just to document that patient verbalized their understanding and declined our basically opt-out naloxone program. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like research-wise, maybe we just didn't think that w we weren't able to track like um, we didn't track like specific cases of who declined naloxone and why. It was just more of anecdotally like uh, what reason did most patients give us for declining. But I feel like that's a good topic for future studies, just exploring the mindset of patients who. Um, they'll receive, maybe they, they are aware of opioid risks, but they still want to proceed with pain management. And, and perhaps that's a certain personality type or um, perhaps, perhaps I'm not sure. <laughs> that's a question yeah. that I th still think needs answered. Uh, you mentioned that one of the, I don't know what, what percentage of reasons this was, but what was cost of the medication, some people would decline it for that reason. Uh, I don't know if you know how often that, that occurred, but that is an interesting kind of public health type of question, you know, should insurers be required to cover it uh, for folks who are deemed at, at risk from whatever level mm -hmm. from the prescribing uh, provider. Um, and if it's something that the unit continues to to do, I'm, I'm sure it is given it's a quality improvement program and everything. Um, if there's if there's enough of those types of incidents, y'all could collect that and report that. That would be quite interesting. It would be interesting, but I think that uh, deals with the significance of naloxone prescription does actually giving does having naloxone in the home reduce opioid deaths and adverse events? Uh -huh. I think so. It's it's definitely been shown in many studies to be a good rescue drug. It's easy to learn how to use and now easy to administer. I just wonder if you know I I can understand there's hesitation on sort of the policy side of things. Like oh sure like if we cover everyone's naloxone who may be at risk for overdosing, I imagine that'd be quite expensive. And mm -hmm. maybe that's it's not guaranteed that it comes with education or in-depth provider discussions about pain management. Um, so I don't I don't know if we can take data 
of just naloxone prescribing alone with opioids as, yes, this means these people are more safe. And of course, uh, yeah, I mean, these these Narcan prescriptions are increasingly in a lot of states, you know, you can get it over the counter without a doctor's prescription, of course. And, um, you know, there are definitely a number of public health programs where it is free or minimal cost. Uh, oh, I was going to say, it's uh-huh. it definitely saves lives, but mm-hmm. does it does it reduce the amount of risk people are already at who are taking opioids? I don't think so. I think it reduces the risk of dying, but I don't think it reduces their risk of overdose or physical dependence or all the other bad side effects sure. um, of long-term yeah. use. Yeah. But we count that life save as a win nonetheless, even if they go on to overdose again. <laughs> of guess. course, but, of course. Yeah. And, you know, I've, I've actually listened to some podcasts. Um, I think there was one recently called The Lazarus Drug. That was the episode. Um, uh-huh. But it's The Secret Brain, Hidden Brain. The Hidden Brain NPR on NPR. Pod- yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yes. Um, and it was fantastic. They had, like, very personal stories from people who basically were heroin addicts and they would overdose and then people would bring them right back with naloxone. It increases their pain. They need some more heroin. Um, so it's it's kind of like the naloxone and the opioids. It's like yin and yang. It's like, yes, you need one for the other and the other one necessitates mm-hmm. the other. Um, but I don't know if just take-home naloxone is the key. I, like, I feel like the, the results of our study, even though it's um, kind of a no-brainer and we kind of already know this already, but yeah. it's... I think the the time investment and the effort and energy investment of a whole unit team, um, whether that's rehab or especially surgery, because obviously surgical patients, uh, opioids is definitely indicated in the acute healing period. It's it's the mentality and the goal of the team treating the patient that has to shift and change. Mm-hmm. It's not just, oh, well, we're adding on naloxone. It's free now. They're safe. Um, and unfortunately, there's uh, the system that we have for healthcare right now, it's not giving doctors more time to have conversations and educate patients. It's limiting us to 10, 15 minute visits or else we fall behind. And um, I think that's definitely part of the problem. Yeah, and speaking of the system, of course, I mean, I guess maybe it's getting better in some some aspects with uh, what's really an epidemic now, but but there's still pressure to, you know, prescribe to relieve pain and simple and easy to just, you know, prescribe that, that Percocet and so forth and not yeah. look at the downstream consequences, um, you know, help the patient theoretically right now, but certainly not later. Uh, these other things um, also have to kind of change the perception of the patient and family as well that uh, about what quality care is. You know, it is that time spent uh, communicating about mm-hmm. um, and, and looking for other alternative pain strategies and to work towards getting people off of this um, rather than uh, simply you know, giving them more of what they may perhaps originally wanted, um, but understanding what, what's best. So. I think there's been a shift to in healthcare. Like when I was doing the literature background research for this article, I mean, this the most recent wave and epidemic kind of started in the 80s. There was some marketing and pharmaceutical pushes to really increase the prevalence of opioid prescribing. They're great for pain. And the pendulum swung one way where it's like, yes, let's give this for everything. It's so helpful. And then, you know, we're into the 90s and the early 2000s. Those people who've been on opioids since the 80s, they're, you know, deteriorating all these adverse effects. And so the pendulum is starting to swing the other way to the other extreme. Let's really cut off opioids with limits to 90 milli equivalents in Maryland. You know, pain, pain clinics now all over have to just cut people's opioids in half. And uh, policy is not really giving physicians a choice, but physicians, you know, I think a lot of pain providers see that there are opportunities. We just don't have 
as much support or like logistical or systematic opportunities to do uh, what should be done uh, in terms of patient education and pain education. Because of course we want to treat their pain. We want them to be comfortable. We want them to maximize their wellness and lifestyle. Um, and opioids is a fast, quick way for that. Uh, but, you know, I, I was a physical medicine and rehab resident. I was an intern in general surgery. I've seen a lot of people with a lot of types of pain and even just talking to people about the particular types of pain they have and kind of educating them, this is why I'm doing this. And this is caused because of this other organic or pathological issue. Um, Improving their awareness of that already helps empower them to know that, okay, I'm not just resigned to being in pain. I know what's causing my pain. I can live my life despite my pain. And my doctor is helping me. Like, I feel like that mindset, if it were possible to reach every patient with an opioid dependence and, and kind of reset them to that mindset as opposed to when can I get my next refill, uh, I think we'd be starting to move in the right direction. Well, fantastic. Well, uh, thanks for helping uh, uh, elucidate this study. Clearly, y'all, y'all learned quite a lot. The, st- the study is very detailed. I encourage the readers of the journal to go uh, check it out. Uh, a lot can be learned, and perhaps folks can uh, port some of these lessons over to their own rehab units. Um, Uh, Dr. Van, thanks for your time today. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to talk to you, Ford. And that'll do it, folks, for this look into the July and August issues of the Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to make plans to join us in Chicago this November. Among the featured guests are Ben Harder, Managing Editor-in-Chief of Health Analysis for U.S. News. He'll be talking about the conundrum of ranking rehabilitation medicine on hard metrics, which U.S. News will start doing in 2020. Join us in Chicago this fall for ACRM 2019, the largest interdisciplinary rehabilitation conference in the world. The main core conference and pre-conference instructional courses deliver six jam-packed days of evidence-based educational content for the whole rehab team, as well as patients and their caregivers. Please visit acrm.org for more information and follow hashtag ACRM2019.